The Plumley Pod, episode 29. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome back to The Plumley Pod. It's wonderful to be here again. Great shout out to Chris at Podsworth Media and his good lady wife who have had a baby, baby Aaron. Congratulations from all at the Plumley Pod. We're absolutely made up for you. I hope you're having a wonderful time with that wee baby. And thank you very, very much indeed for still being there to help me out with this podcast. You are amazing. That's the housekeeping done. Tick, tick, tick. Now I've got a treat for you guys this week. I have the pleasure of speaking to Rick Munn from TNT Radio. He is on the programme called Locked and Loaded, which is Monday to Fridays, 10 to 1 on tntradio.live. You can find it online. That's tntradio.live. The times I've given you there are British because obviously I'm useless and British. So you're going to have to Google your own. No, (gasps) I just said a swears. Can't say Google. Sorry, I said it again. Pre-search or use a better search engine, obviously, to find out what time that is in your language. But this gentleman, he is a husband, he is a father, he speaks unusual foreign languages, and he can be found at Twitter at no reward underscore no risk. But if you just search for no risk, no reward, you'll find him that way. So that will all be good. Warning, warning, his videos are dynamite. If I had to describe this man in one word, dynamite, dynamite, dynamite. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation, sir. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to having a chat with you tonight. I'm literally so pleased you said yes, because I know you are extremely busy. You're live five times a week, which is tough. We're listeners now. We're converts. I managed to get my husband away from that horrible, horrible, I won't mention the name of this so-called radio show, but it's, it's the one that tried to be alternative. It's the one with Julia heaving bosom and the big fat slug that comes on afterwards. Well, you don't need to listen to that anymore, people. Get your husbands away from it. Get your wives away from it because we now have an alternative and that alternative is TNT Radio. Rick, can you tell us, how did this TNT Radio gig come about and how did you get to where you are right now, like championing this wonderful program, Locked and Loaded? Well, to be honest, in terms of the TNT gig, It wasn't planned on my part. I have no background in radio. I have no qualifications, no previous broadcasting experience, nothing. So about February 2021-ish, I started making little video clips on my mobile phone and uploading them onto Twitter. At the time, I didn't use the platform. I just felt I had to start talking. It was actually about mental health, trying to give people some mental health tips, mental health awareness. Then I started talking about what was going on in the world. Those little clips started to gain a little bit of traction. More people started to watch them. And then after about six months, so around about July 2021, someone in Australia saw one of them and sent it to a guy called Mike Ryan, who had a TV show called Asia Pacific Today. They contacted me and said, would you like to come on to have a chat? I thought it was a setup. They wanted to get me on to make me look bad. Why else would they want to speak to an Irish man sitting in his car in the middle of the night making grainy black and white videos? I thought it was a wind up, so I ignored them. Then they contacted me again 
and assured me that they were serious. So I agreed to come on for 10 minutes. The 10 minutes ran to an hour. The show went well, had a good reception. And then he said to me, after a few scotches one night, he said to me, uh, if I ever get a radio station up and running, would you come and be a part of it? So I said, yeah, sure thing. It's uh, the drink talking. And then there was nothing again for another six months. So uh, last Christmas, last Christmas, he contacted me again. He said, we're good to go. Are you good to go? I said, well, good to go where? And he said, to do this, this radio thing. I said, Mike, I've got a full-time job. I'm kind of tired, to be honest. I've got family commitments. I don't have time to do this at night, you know, in my... He said, no, this would be your job. You quit your job. You would come and do this. And I said, look, I need to make you aware also. I don't have any background. I have no broadcasting experience. I don't know anything about technology, et cetera. But he said, listen, you'll be fine. So anyway... Checked in my job last New Year's Eve, 31st of December last year, and we started the station in uh, January, and it's been going well ever since. So that's, that's how it all came about, sir. It's an extraordinary story. And when you say things like, oh, I've got no broadcasting experience, I believe you because I know you're a truthful man, but I want to say I don't believe you because you're so comfortable on the microphone. My husband's commented on it and he's listened to variations on talking radio, for want of a better phrase, his whole life. In fact, one of the hardest things in his awakening over the years was not being able to listen to intelligent talking radio anymore because he just couldn't bear the lies. And he's really missed it. And, you know, he's full of praise and he's a he's a right curmudgeon. Well, he listens to this. I should be careful. But no, he's very picky and choosy about what he will and won't spend his time listening to. So, you know, big up there. You've done an amazing job. And I never thought I'd get him away from the heaving bosom. So thank God for that. Thank you for that. I have to say, all at TNT have been extremely generous to me personally. You know, they're good people. They seem to, like, help you promote your events. Mm -hmm. And I've listened to quite a few of the other programs now and uh, really, really enjoy it. And power Good. to everybody involved at the station because it's about time we had something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, there was a there was a, a, a niche in the market there and somebody felt that it was the right thing to do to provide an alternate voice. So like I said, it was only really born in January of this year and it's been growing and developing and solidifying its position and we will continue to do so. We're still... We're still a work in progress, but we're making a lot of gains and uh, we're getting a good foundation laid to build upon going forward for the next few years, you know. I've seen it grow in front of my eyes because if you go to, I think it's Podbean, where you can download the podcast after the show, the day after or anyway, you can see the yep. number of downloads that you're now getting compared to what you were getting earlier in the year. And it's growing massively. You know, the numbers are sometimes doubling and trebling from what I've previously seen. I'm like, whoa, this is, you know, people are starting to realize that, oh, actually, there's some people telling the truth over there. Am I going to listen to that? Thank goodness. I mean, not you know, yeah. not before time, but it's there now and we've got this wonderful resource. Just want to go back to your moody videos, your dark. Mm. I love it. I thought it was some sort of Nordic noir at first. I was like, oh, this <laughs> looks interesting because I discovered it way before, obviously, TNT Radio. I yeah. was following you on Twitter and I'm like, oh, this looks cool. What's going on here? And you've got the axe. And I actually think that the, what you call the poor lighting is really, I think it's sort of stylized i think I, I thought it was a production value i, I thought it's it it just uh, just lack of production actually is what it <laughs> but it works well it seems to work well that dark graininess you know it's not computer generated it's just really dark and it's really grainy that's like legit and the ones of you walking down the street in the dark are really powerful it is it you know it's a director's dream it's uh you know i, I but what really sticks out is 
you're speaking from the heart. It's your integrity. It's your courage. It's your integrity. Just hearing a real man in the real world telling it like it is, I think has been a real tonic for, well, clearly enormous number of people on Twitter have been tweeting and liking. And and the numbers are being lied about. You're way more popular than even the statistics you can currently see, which show that you're a popular man. You said it started off as a mental health help. How has it developed over the last two years or so? Well, to be honest with you, I still try and keep a focus on the mental health side of things, because while it's all fine and well, knowing what's going on in the world and trying to predict what will come down the line and prepare yourself accordingly, that's all well and good. But if your head's not together, if your head goes down, if you start to break down mentally, it doesn't matter how much you know, it doesn't matter how well you're prepared, you're going to crumble. So I moved from that into at the time they were starting to talk about, you know, bringing out vaccines, the lockdowns were on, people were all over the place. My own circle of close friends were all really struggling mentally. I suppose I was trying to do it as much for them as for anybody else. And like I said, at the beginning, there was no audience. It was just me. And, you know, when you're starting from scratch, you know, there's no one there. And then someone sees it and then it grows a little bit here and there. But prior to the Twitter stuff, to be honest with you, I mean, like for two years, three years. I was making videos in my car, but they were for a YouTube channel that I have that's like, we did delve into the spiritual side of things. So I cut my teeth in the car for two years before I started doing the Twitter stuff, albeit on different subject matter. And I do have a lot of experience public speaking in Africa, in prisons, on, you know, street corners. So I don't find it difficult to do, to talk. For me, it's easy. Some people, public speaking is the worst nightmare for me. It just comes easy. So that's not something I trained in. It's just something I believe I have. It's a gift. I didn't choose it. It's one I have. I can't change a light bulb. I can't change a plug. I struggle to change a car. I'm not a practical person. I'm not a very smart person. I can be a nasty person, but I can talk. So I'm trying to utilize that one little thing that I have and I'm thrashing it to death right now, Sarah. <laughs> the only thing I disagree with there is the I'm not a very smart person. Mm. You're a very humble person, but mm. your intelligence is in speaking, it's in communications, it's in telling the truth, having the courage to sit or stand there and tell it how it is. And I just think that comes across so well. And Mike Ryan was dead right. Whatever it is, he saw that and then figured, yeah, that's going to resonate with people who want to listen to the truth for a change, right? Yeah, true. Well, I appreciate him, by the way. You know, uh, it came at a good time for me. I was working on a government job and an office job and a nine-to-five that, while I was grateful for it, it provided a wage. It was it was killing me mentally. You know, I knew there was other things I wanted to do, but I, I couldn't get a break. I just couldn't get a break. And then it just literally came from making those videos one thing meant another. And there I say, was it not for that? I uh, wouldn't be talking to you here this evening. You and I would never have connected had it not been for that. So things have a way of playing out if you just stick at it. Just keep grinding, keep persevering, keep going until there's nothing left in you. It's only over when you drop. All right. So if you're out there, you're listening, you're disheartened, you've been grinding it out, you can't get a break, your head's going down. Just keep going. Trust me. Just keep going you will get to the promised land at the end. Believe me, if I made it, you can make it. Thank you for telling everybody because my parents, I always say my parents, I mean the parents that I work with and for, of course, not my actual parents, but 
they're working super hard. You know, these people are earning a crust. They are raising their children. And they're also playing teacher now to many of them that they've chosen to home educate. And some of them are pretty exhausted, but they're the best people. I have so much fun. They're just real. They're real people putting in the real work. And what you just said there that stuck out for me was you've put something out there into the world freely. You've spent your own time, your own effort making videos, uploading them to YouTube in the beginning for like five people and then 50. And and you've just kept at it and kept doing it and doing the same thing with Twitter. And it's having that belief that if you put something out into the world and you're doing it honestly from a place of integrity, aligned with the universe, if you like, if you will, what is it they say that when you start working for the universe, the universe, funnily enough, starts working for you. And I have never realized that in a more real world way than over the last couple of years and to hear other people saying the same thing. Like I would never have, I wanted to believe that. I've always believed that hard work will get you where you want to go in the end. But the last couple of years have sort of challenged that firmly held belief in some respects. But in others, I've watched other people just do something through their own conviction and stick at it. And then it's come good. And I think that's a a massive lesson for particularly, well, not just for young people, but particularly for our young people in these difficult times. It must have been awful being a teenager during the pandemic, the scandemic. It was bad enough being an adult, but we tend to have more tools to deal with these kinds of crises than young people. I know you have a young person. And how did you notice that affect your household, the pandemic, the lockdowns and, and the rest it of it? It was, well, on a personal level, you know, for me, I I wasn't so bad because I don't, socialize much anyway. I don't really take holidays. I don't go to bars and clubs. So the lockdowns didn't do me any harm at all. In fact, I enjoyed them because it got me out of the office to work from home for two years. It actually benefited me on a personal level. So thank you to the government for the, the for that one. I say that tongue in cheek, but I watched other people in my family really suffer, especially my daughter having to be kicked out of school initially for nine months, brought back for two months, then kept out for another six months. Then if and when she had a return being told, you have to sit in a bubble, you can't go outside, you have to wash your hands, you have to wear your mask, you have to follow the system. And the teachers themselves, dare I say, and I'm generalizing here, you know, they were all having to play the game too. And I think a lot of them were resentful that they had to follow these rules that they had deep down inside themselves knew were complete BS, but they had to put on the front. They had to pretend that they believed in something that they really didn't believe in. And when you're forced to do that, like if you were to tell me I have to change my narrative and read off a different hymn sheet in order to maintain a position, it will start to eat me up because I'll think, where's my integrity? You know, I'm doing something that's patently against what I believe in. And when people do that, they start to get a little bit angry and, you know, angsty. I think a lot of teachers, let's be honest about it, Sarah, they're not silly people. They're educated to a degree, okay? They know what's going on. They knew they were just following orders. They knew it was harming the kids. They knew it wasn't benefiting anybody, but still they played the game. And it was just, I believe, schools became toxic environments. When I pulled my daughter out of school, And the welfare people got in contact with me as they do. You know, they didn't give a damn about her. They never asked how she was doing as a person. They were more concerned about attendance statistics. 
And I said, listen, when a school starts to become a school and not a cross between a concentration camp and a zoo, then I'll send her back to school in inverted commas. But you're going to have to show me that that's the case. And they actually said to me, they said, well, we'll have to mark her down as uh, absent due to coronavirus. They'll say, no, you make sure you mark her file absent due to government policy. It's got nothing to do with coronavirus. She's not ill. It's because of government policy. And I said, if I asked to inspect your records and you haven't put that down, I'll take legal action against you. So they actually did put that on her file, absent due to government policy. And then the welfare people left us alone after that. And she did okay at the end of the day. Thank God she got, she passed her exams without them, without any support, without any care, attention given by the school. So I have to give her props for that. Yeah, power to her for that. That's an, an extraordinary achievement despite everything. And hearing you talk, as we've had a few conversations now on your show about the way in which she was treated and the lack of resources provided for her learning from outside of school, absolutely disgraceful. And I have to say, I... I've really struggled with my teaching colleagues during this time. I haven't really got any left that I speak to now because I can't reconcile what they did to children. Now, I know people need money and they need to pay the bills like I don't, like everyone else doesn't. But if they just turn around a group of teachers in one school and said, no, we're not enforcing this, then it wouldn't have been possible because you can't. It's very, very hard to get cover teachers. And it's certainly hard to get 10 of them in the same school. And it wouldn't have taken very long at all if people had just stuck to what their heart said for this to have all gone away overnight and for these children not to be harmed. And I can't, like, I'm really wrestling with that forgiveness thing. I certainly need to work on that because I really can't bear what they've done. You know, colleagues that I used to respect that I now can't bear to speak to because of what they've done. They went along with it. Like, have we not learned any lessons from particularly 20th century history? Not only that, but let me just add one other thing here. That in and of itself was bad enough. But to add insult to injury, in my opinion, like you said there, to give my daughter a juice, despite the lack of support, despite the lack of current attention, it was difficult for her. She still managed to get through and get what she needed. Not one person from the school or one teacher contacted her after the results came out and said, you know what, well done. How did you get on? We heard that you did okay. Nothing. It was just she was discarded like a like a filthy rag last year, the year before last, and no one really gave a damn at that point. Since to me, your actions speak louder than your words and the lack of even acknowledgement she got through that from her own school, because obviously that reflects in there pass rates and pass marks, et cetera. It gives them a better look, not even a, a letter, an email or a phone call from the form teacher, from any of her subject teachers to say, hey, well done. You know, it's just, <laughs> it tells me all I need to know, sir, about what's going on out there. How did she take, how was your daughter feeling when not, effectively nothing happened from well, these people that she presumably had a relationship with? Well, she doesn't say much, to be honest with you, but let's just say it hasn't done her any good. You know, when you have a bad experience with something or someone at an early age, it's hard to get over that as time goes by. And uh, certainly the way school was, even before the lockdowns, where you know what it's like, they're just indoctrination centers, this horrible wokeism that began to creep into school. Nasty individuals in schools forming horrible little cliques, literally getting away with murder becomes a, a real stressful environment to be in as a teenager or a preteen going through primary schools. 
just one thing after another. So in a way, it was a blessing that she got out of school. But at the same time, the adults, the adults failed her terribly, terribly. And uh, yeah, it is what it is. I try not to dwell too much on it. But yeah, I can forgive, but I certainly won't forget. The student-teacher relationship is a vital one. It's a special one, actually. There's particular laws and customs and practices around it because it's so special. And I'm not necessarily talking adult to minor here. I'm just talking teacher to student. It could be coach to athlete. It doesn't matter whether it's an actress and a director. If you have a level of authority or even perceived authority over somebody else, you have a duty of care to that person no matter what. If you are their tutor, their instructor, their teacher, their director, their coach, you have a duty of care to that human being, not just to their performance on the pitch or their performance at the concert or whatever it happens to be, the recital, the examinations. The complete lack of regard from teachers to students has just been unbelievable. I think the damage that has been, I don't even think we know yet, the full extent of the damage that has been caused psychologically by this kind of behaviour. What does that teach a young person that has no attention whatsoever from adults that have been in her life daily, five times a week, whatever, for a very long time, many, many years, particularly at a secondary school, you're there, what, five years, seven years, depending on your age, Mm -hmm. depending on where you are in the country and whether you choose to do further study or not. But five to seven years, it's a long time. And to feel that nobody gives a damn about you. When you're a teenager, I can't imagine how hard that is. That's tough as an adult. And being cut off from your your friends as well. Don't forget there was that social isolation element as well as pastoral neglect. So you had pastoral neglect from the teachers, but that was coupled with social isolation. And of course, the government campaign that was instilling in the children's minds that if you go and see granny, you could kill her or, you know, you don't want to be spreading disease around. So they were getting it from all angles, to be honest with you. They were getting it from all angles and and the damage, speaking with people daily on the, the radio and speaking with doctors and speaking with people that deal with psychological issues, the damage is unbelievable right across the board. I don't I don't know how a child can go through that and not be affected to a degree, some more so than others, but I would say that every child in the United Kingdom and across the world has been affected negatively by government policy over the last two to three years, without any exception. I've just been dropped by my languages teacher because he's had to go back to hospital with his third heart coincidence since 2021. This is a guy in his late 40s, formerly extremely fit, and he's had his third heart coincidence, as they say. And I'm gutted. Like, I'm an adult, and I've lost my beloved languages teacher, and I am gutted. I'm hurting. I'm a grown-up. I've got way more experience at this stuff. I've had way more awful things happen to me in life along, you know, along the way. How a teenager can deal with what they've just been put through is beyond my comprehension. I firmly believe that we are only seeing the tip of the iceberg with regard to mental health issues that are going to come out in the future as a direct consequence of the harms of lockdown. And like you said, I love how what you said to those welfare people. This is because of government policy, not because yep. of illness or coronavirus, whatever that was or is. That was directly because of government policy. Power to you for telling them that I want to see that on the record. And when I check, it better be there. Because I how did. many people were cowards and didn't? And that well, was put down as COVID when it wasn't at all. 
The other thing is, you mentioned about mental health. And again, just from a personal, everything that I did, my wife and I obviously made the decision. Actually, we talked with our daughter, but we didn't tell her she wasn't going to school. We didn't tell her she had to go back. The three of us sat down and we discussed it. Okay, how do you feel about this? And based on her feelings and the way we felt as parents, we came to the decision. And for anyone that's listening, the way I looked at it was at the top of the pyramid, is mental health. Your child's mental well-being is paramount. It trumps any education. It trumps any job they may get. It trumps everything. Your child needs to be content and at peace first and foremost. If that's not the case, it doesn't matter where they go, what school they're at, what qualifications they get, what job they end up in, and so on and so forth, if they aren't in a good place mentally. So let your child's mental health be the deciding factor in every decision that you make. And if you weigh everything in the balances, that mental health side of things should outweigh everything else, all right? And even if it means you take your kid out of school from a toxic environment that is detrimental to their mental health, even if they're getting no education, even if you're not homeschooling them, even if it's for a short period of time, get them out. Do not let them be exposed to toxic pollutants in the shape and form of woke curriculums, teachers that are not teachers, and just a general negative environment. I can't stress that enough. Mental health trumps everything. I first heard you say that on your radio show, Locked and Loaded, where you came out with nothing is more important than your child's mental health. And you just pulled no punches on that. You are absolutely convinced, adamant. And I thought, yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying that because that is it. I have an enormous number of people that are on my email list that are watching what I'm doing from afar, who if the government mandated a vaccine, say, overnight in return for education. So if they said, right, you can't come to school anymore unless you have X, Y, and Z vaccinations. I know they would immediately withdraw their children and come and do some work with me on building a proper curriculum individually tailored for their children at home. Something that would build them up and focus on what they're good at, what they enjoy, as well as academically rigorous subjects for those who wish to go on to be doctors, lawyers, teachers, whatever. However, they're doing nothing right now. And to me, that says that they don't value mental health or at least they put physical health above in the hierarchy above mental health, which is crazy to me because if you break a leg, it takes about six to eight weeks for that to heal typically. And you make a full recovery if you do your exercises and everything goes well. How long does it take to fix a broken mind? Do we even know how to do that? See, this is the thing. You know, what's, you've got to look at what your priorities are as a parent, as a guardian or a custodian. And don't forget, the kid spends... How many hours a week, you know, six or five hours a day, five, 25 hours, 100 hours a month, 100 hours a month in an environment that could potentially be toxic as detrimental to their mental health. And as you say, how long does it take to undo that? I don't know about you, but my daughter had a bad experience with an injection when she was like six years of age. Terrible. We we're trying to draw blood. Now she's terrified of needles to this day. She won't go anywhere near needles. She takes panic attacks. And that's just from one bad experience in one minute with a doctor with a needle, and it still has a negative effect on her. How much more so the compounded effects of 100 hours a month, a month, multiplied by 12 months, multiplied by seven years. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. The school cares about KPIs. That's the bottom line. It's all about KPIs. KPIs, KPIs. Parents, forget KPIs. 
mental health, all right? Don't be like a school. Forget the tense records, percentages, and all that crap. It's all about mental health. That's it. I can't emphasize it enough. To them, it's about attendance records, is it not? Yeah, yeah. It money, is. money, money. It is, it is. The first day, let me say this, the first day my daughter went to that school, she got a letter and they did a, a slideshow for all the parents on the open day and the kids. And on the slideshow, they said, now, if your child misses even one day per week or per month of school, their grade performance will go down, down, down. And we can't have that. We're very stringent on the tens. And then what did they do? Two years ago, they kicked them all out of school for, what, nine months, 10 months? Where was the attendance? Where was the graphs at the end? The graphs were put to the side, and then they were reintroduced again when the doors were opened again, when the government said so. The hypocrisy is disgusting. It's breathtaking, breathtaking hypocrisy. Well said, sir. Well said. I can't believe, and I've got to stop saying I can't believe, because frankly, I can. I see where this is going. I can believe now. I've I've got to find a new way to speak about this. But anyway... I can't believe the garbage that they spout about attendance. I don't know what studies they're using, but presumably they're ones that were paid for by them. Because I missed tons of school when I was young. I had epilepsy, I had asthma, and I really did miss rather a lot of school because I was genuinely very, very sick. But I did extremely well. And I wasn't, you know, especially clever. I wasn't a genius or anything. But it's not to do with the actual number of minutes and hours that you're sat in your seat facing front doing as you're told, copying crap out of textbooks. It's actually to do with endeavour and what you want to achieve. And I was very motivated. I'm a sportswoman by background. I did a lot of amateur theatre too, but sports was one of the other things that I really, really loved. And when you have a cup final coming up, you start training in a different way. You start preparing in a more appropriate manner. You think about more about your food. You think more about your sleep. You start to live better all around, holistically. You're really going for that cup final. And it's the mentality of, right, I want to achieve this. So then you put everything into it. And it doesn't matter that you've only got a few weeks before the final or a few months before your exams. I've seen children jump two whole grades from like E's to C's. I've seen children move from C's to B's in literally six to eight weeks just because they've realized that, oh, if I do this work, I'm going to get that grade in maths. It's like, yeah, that's how it works. That's how everything works. Actually, your focus on something that you really, really want to achieve is much more of a determinant of the outcomes than the hours that you're sat there copying out of a book, yeah. being lectured by somebody who doesn't probably know very much about life. They're repeating what they learned from textbooks when they were at school. I just don't understand this kind of stuff that they spout out saying, oh, if you miss three days, then you'll get this grade. It cannot be true. That cannot be the truth. And why do they keep making fake science fake and then telling us that we must follow the science? How long can that last? How long can those lies hold up? The system has always been a mess. It's always been broken, but I think the spotlight's on it now because, you know, like I said right at the start, there's no way anybody with a modicum of genuine intelligence can actually say that they believe that following a one-way system or isolating children or making them wear masks or only when you're in the corridors and communal areas but not in the classrooms and keeping the windows open in the winter time or sawing the bottom off classroom doors as Nicholas Sturgeon wanted to do to the tune of about 10 million. Come on, tell me as a grown adult, as an educator, tell me you think that's legitimate science. If that's the case, if you really believe that, you have no business teaching children science. End of story. It's an intelligence test that you failed. It's like going to a GP or a doctor when they're wearing a surgical mask. You're thinking, do I trust my life to this person's hands? They think this little piece of cloth 
from China. It comes in a box to say that it will not protect you from a respiratory disease. Am I going to allow them to prescribe me chemicals and drugs and allow me to be operated on? Wise up. Wise up. Well, it's funny you should say that because the third biggest killer in the United States, and I have to quote U.S data here because I don't know the British data. I don't know how to find it, to be honest. But in the US, the third biggest killer is your doctor. (laughs) Behind heart disease and cancer, it's your doctor. And I don't mean people who've accidentally taken drugs incorrectly or accidentally overdosed because that's a separate category. That's counted differently. This is people taking prescribed medications exactly as directed that were given to them by their doctor. And it's the third biggest killer in the United States. How much longer? I uh, just uh, just as you're saying that stuff's coming into my head. I used to work in financial services for a long time, and I used to deal with high net worth clients. Let's just say doctors and surgeons and judges. I remember talking to an old surgeon once in Belfast. I would tell you what his name is. His first name was Roy, and I had the most enlightening conversation. I was there to talk to him about his financial planning, but he was telling me about the health service as a consultant ENT surgeon. Okay, and he said to me, listen, he said, I said to him, do you ever, you ever lose any patients? And he laughed and he said, lose them? We lose them. We lose them all the time. We lose them hand over fist. And I said, why? What happens? He says, the first thing a surgeon will do if a surgeon needs surgery is ask who's doing the anesthesia, all right? They say there are anesthetists working in the NHS that I would not trust to come anywhere close to my body should I be knocked out for surgery. He says, we will postpone surgery. We will refuse surgery depending on who's doing the anesthetic. And I said, well, what about, what about me? What about if I come in? He said, well, it's uh, potluck. If you get that person, good luck to you. If you don't, you're, you've dodged the bullet. I couldn't believe he was saying it. And this is from a consultant DNT working for the NHS and also doing private consultancy work. Sarah, <laughs> they're coming at you from every single angle. Educationally, they're after you. Doctors, medics, they're after you. Pharmaceutical companies, they're after you. Your toothpaste, your deodorant, your fluoride in your water, the air that you're breathing. Hell's bells. This is a game. This is a survival game. Life. Right now, it's a survival game. We're already living in the Hunger Games, aren't we? We are. We are. We already live it. We think it's a joke. We think it's coming in the future. No, it's here. And you say this all the time on your show. It's not coming. It's here right now. It is here. And the sooner people grasp that and don't think, oh, this is lunacy. What he's saying is not. It's not. It's not. Think about it. And the best, the most effective way to wage war on someone is to make them unaware of the fact that they're actually being attacked. So if you don't perceive that you're under attack or you don't perceive you're in any threat of danger, you won't take precautions and you won't take steps to protect yourself. And that, I'm afraid, is the reason why we're in the position we're in right now. There's a war happening and people don't realize they're in the middle of a war. Is it not Mossad who have the motto, something along the lines of, by way of deception, we will make war? Is that not the translation, something like that? It could be. It sounds like an old Sun Tzu reference. It said the art of war is the art of deception or words along those lines. And by the way, parents, there's another one for you. Recommended reading. The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Simple book, simple bullet points, strategic military thinking. If that was taught in schools from primary one and upwards, what a different generation of children we would have right now, sir. But unfortunately, it's not. But yes, yeah, they seem to capitalize on deception to our government and it's working very well for them. Totally agree. I've actually got a copy of that right over there on the side. It's sat up looking at me. 
Art of War by Sun Tzu. Literally sat over there. (laughs) Good on you. (laughs) What you're saying about the medical establishment is bang on. I remember Andy Murray, the tennis player, the Scottish tennis player, he needed a very, very serious, very, very dangerous hip operation, which is public knowledge. He talks about it a lot in the press. And I remember him saying, he was asking the surgeon, well, how do I know you're good? In tennis, we have things called national rankings and international rankings. We know who's won the Grand Slams. We have a point system where I play you, and if I win, I get more points. And if you lose, you get less points. So we know who the best tennis players are. Everyone knows who the best tennis players are. But how do I know you're good? Like, how do I know you're good? And people have just not ever thought of this. And the surgeon was like, well, actually, that's quite a good point. Um, (laughs) We don't have a system like that. It's just that those of us who earn lots of money perhaps now in private practice, well, we must be doing something right, otherwise people wouldn't pay that money. And I get that. But what a terrifying thing for those of us who can't afford to fork out huge amounts of money for private surgery or whatever. Like, there's no way of knowing if the person you're getting is any good at their job. They're not all good. And it only takes a few bad apples. to You know, you only need one to kill you. Do you know what you can do, actually? Again, you're saying things and it's triggering experiences that I've had in my life. But In 2013, I had to get a hernia operation done, okay? I had a really bad inguinal hernia. I needed to get surgery done. So I went for a consultation with a consultant in a hospital in Dundonald in Northern Ireland. And he looked at me, he told me what was wrong, and he said, right, we're going to have to do an operation. And I said, are you doing it? And he said, well, I can't guarantee it'll be me doing it. I said, well, if it's not you, who will it be? He said, well, it could be another consultant. It could be a senior house officer under the observation of a consultant or whatnot. And I said, well, you know, to be honest, if someone's going into me with a scalpel down in the groin area, I'd like it to be someone who knows what the hell they're doing. You know, is that too much to ask? And he said, well, I can't guarantee it. I said, well, you put a note down in my file that if it's not a consultant, I don't want the operation. I don't care how long I have to wait. No junior doctor's getting at me with a bloody scalpel. And I also did research. I said, if you do the surgery, you consultant, I don't want keyhole surgery. I actually want open surgery. I've done my research in this and I don't want a heavy mesh inserted into my abdomen. I want the lightweight mesh and actually named the mesh. I told them what I wanted. Who am I? to come down and tell a consultant surgeon what I want, but I did. And when it came time to get the surgery, he actually didn't do it, but the guy that did it was the the most experienced surgeon in Northern Ireland. His name was Mr. Richard Best. He'd done more operations than anyone else, and he was about to retire. And he said, uh, he came in and he sat in my bed. He said, okay, I'm looking at your notes here. He said, you don't want keyhole surgery. You've requested open surgery. I said, that's correct. He said, you don't want this mesh. You've named the mesh. Well, that's correct. And then he looked at me and he said, well done, son. He said, you've done your homework. That's exactly what I would have recommended if I had been doing the initial consultation. So people out there, there's a world of information at your disposal and you are in control of everything, including your own body, your own mind, and your own soul. So do not let a consultant or a professor or anybody else or a politician or a knight or a sir or a this or that tell you what's what when you know what's what. And do not be browbeaten down by anyone. You're as good as anybody else out there and you have as much information at your disposal as they do. Stick to your guns. Very, very well said. I love how you just come off with these. It's so It's bang on every single time. It's very interesting what you say about experienced consultants, because we are losing almost all of the experienced teachers from our schools, 
from our primary schools, our secondary schools, from our wee ones, our older ones, we are losing a wealth of information and experience. And that counts for stuff. Newly qualified teachers are generally very enthusiastic, very excited. They bring energy and enthusiasm, but they have no experience whatsoever. They can't have that, and that's okay. But they're supposed to be compensated for by experienced teaching staff around them from whom they're supposed to learn and develop and buddy up and help each other out. The, you know, the, Occasionally, a newly qualified teacher will teach a, an old dinosaur teacher a thing or two. But more often than not, we need these dinosaurs because they've been in the system a very long time. They have life experience, not just experience of how the system works. And in my opinion, the most valuable teachers are taking early retirement. They're walking out. They're getting jobs in tea rooms because they'd rather serve tea and cake all day than deal with the pressure. If that had happened already in medicine, it would be blindingly obvious, wouldn't it? Yeah. Medicine is a strange, strange beast. I mean, like, you know, it's, you rely on the integrity of your teachers, I'd say more than anything, because literally people's lives depend on the decisions that you make. So obviously, you know, surgical procedures have been refined over time. The administration of the prescription of certain effective drugs have been refined over time. But when you go into med school, year one, you know, you're coming in as a blank canvas and you're really absorbing everything that your peers or your your superiors or your, your more experienced counterparts are telling you. So it's a different setup with medicine, I think, as well. But at the same time, you should never be afraid to criticize and question whatever they're telling you. Because if everyone just believed this science that's been perpetrated on humanity over the last two years, most of us would be dead. People that refuse the job, people that refuse to play the game, people that refuse to social distance and stay away from their families, the results would be even more catastrophic. So even in an environment like medicine, I suppose the thing that I'm trying to say is no matter who you are, don't think you're, you know it all. That's arrogance. But at the same time, if somebody says something to you that doesn't quite sit with you or you're really dubious of what you've just been told, don't be afraid to question your teacher, your professor, whoever it happens to be, and say, could you just explain why that's the case? And if they can't do it satisfactorily, don't accept it. Just don't accept it. Go by your gut. Intuition's very uh, overrated. I think that if we'd had more medical professionals who are experienced leaving the profession in droves, we'd have had a lot more deaths. And it would be very obvious yep. because they cause physical damage. However, having all these children teaching children, if I can be so rude, mm -hmm. because we're literally having, you know, 20-year-olds teaching the future generations with very mm -hmm. little experienced teachers anymore. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe, and I can't prove it because they won't do the studies. They won't let me do the studies anyway. But there are no studies on this. I think we're causing psychological damage because we are not dealing with young people in a mature and dignified, respectful fashion. Because with respect, many of these newly qualified teachers are still children themselves, especially these days where we don't seem to grow up very young anymore. So we don't have the care and the experience. And the, I don't think we ever, I certainly know from teacher training experiences, and I've actually delivered, sadly, teacher training. I apologize for that. That's my fault too. <laughs> that we're not actually training this young generation of teachers in proper pastoral care. They've got this lip service thing, this tick box thing, this Wealth, it's called welfare, but it's not. It's just about attendance and money. 
we're not actually caring as real human beings for other young human beings. And I just think it's monstrously dangerous that we've lost so much experience from the classroom. But it's not obvious because, once again, it's psychological damage rather than physical damage. And I think we're topsy-turvy in this society. I think we put far too much emphasis on physical harm and not half enough on psychological harm. And whilst we're getting reasonably good at fixing physical harm, I still haven't met anybody who I'm pretty confident can actually fix psychological harm. And don't forget, psychological harm and physical harm are usually linked in that if someone is suffering from really bad depression or someone is suffering from really bad anxiety, it can manifest itself in possibly eating disorders, in literal physical self-harm, in really chronic depression or potentially suicidal thoughts and suicide enactments. So, you know, even though... It's a mental thing. And that's why, you know, when we began talking about all this, when I said the focus on the videos that I made was on mental health, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, how advanced you are, how successful you are. If your mind isn't together and your head isn't together, the body follows to a degree, okay? And it usually results in physical degeneration or suicide or self-harm or, you know, maybe eating disorders and other types of anxiety can cause, you know, all sorts of hormonal issues and it's just a litany of disaster, all stemming from mental health problems and mental health imbalance. And often these physical things that occur are not necessarily linked in the first instance to a psychological problem. So then we go to a medical professional who starts treating physical symptoms, which is completely crazy when they haven't figured out the original cause. Because if the original cause is psychological, then there can only be so much symptom treating that could even possibly help. And it might even do more harm to not actually deal with the original cause, the, the primary problem. I'm totally with you on this physical manifestation. I, I've seen it and I've experienced it. I think I've made myself ill previously, inadvertently, because of things that are going on in my life or, or my lifestyle. And I've actually had a physical illness and I've been, oh, hang on a minute. I don't want to take drugs for that. Maybe I should just go to bed a little bit earlier and then see if I can't yeah. figure this out for myself. I started uh-huh. keeping a journal not like a pretentious one about interesting things. Like no one's ever going to read it. It's about like what I ate and what time I went yeah. to bed and what time I woke up so that I can spot patterns in my own. If I get sick, I can look back and say, right, how many late nights have you had in the last month? Be honest. How many pizzas did you eat? And I'm trying to find out what I did wrong myself. And I seem to be doing better than when I was just running off for medical help every 10 minutes when a physical thing you know, manifested itself. Very often it's because I'm not sleeping right or There's a problem in my private life or whatever. There's a lot of power in writing things down, okay? And take stress. Forget, you know, as adults, okay, we're not going through the education system, but, you know, stress is something that I think has affected everybody over the last two years. It doesn't matter who you are. You've got stressed at some point, and different people have different ways of coping with stress. Some people shop. Some people spend money that they don't have. They rack up debts. Some people take drugs. Some people take prescription medication to excessive amounts. Some people might drink. Some people might eat. Some people might not eat. So it all boils back into physical manifestation of something that's going on in your head. And journaling is important too. For me, I'll be honest with you, over the years, if I get worked up and stressed out, I don't drink. I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't smoke, but I would eat garbage at night, okay? So my weight would fluctuate wildly from year to year. And at one point in 2010, my weight had got so high, the doctor said, if you don't start losing weight, you're going to have a heart attack and die within the next five years. It was like about 19 stone. I'm not very tall. This was back in 2010. 
And within three years, uh, I lost half my body weight. So I dropped from 19 stone down to 10 stone, running half marathons and everything else. But one of the ways in which I did that was I started keeping a journal after one year. After the first year, I just trained and tried to be sensible. But see, when I started writing down and became accountable for everything I was doing, and it only takes a few minutes a day, by the way, it's the best few minutes you can invest in your time. It sounds like it's over the top. It's excessive. You're obsessive compulsive. No, you're just making a note down to be accountable to yourself. And the power of actually journaling your successes as well as your failures that you can then read it and reflect and say, well, the reason I'm in this position now is because on Tuesday, I fell down here and I should have done this and I should have done that. So let's make sure it doesn't happen on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And you will fall down and you will have bad days and bad periods. But as long as the good outweighs the bad, you will make progress. If you ignore it and you keep hoping it'll get better just from one day to the next, you're going to stay in the hole, stay in the ditch and stay in the pit. So I, I thoroughly recommend that procedure, journaling, noting down and self-accountability. It's crucial. You will make progress no matter what you're suffering with. Congratulations. That is an extraordinary amount of weight to lose. I would never have guessed, you know, like we must just say, because obviously no one's going to see our video, Rick is in great shape. I don't, I don't, I don't want people to have this image, you know, Rick is in great shape right now, but I would never have guessed. You look pretty athletic to me. What a wonderful achievement. You should, man, you should write that book. You should take those notes and, and, and write that. I People some, would love I to read some. about a real person doing something extraordinary. And do you know what else it did, by the way? Just talking, you talked earlier on about video journaling. When you're really not happy with your body, you become very self-conscious. You don't want people to see you. You want to kind of hide away. I actually started making videos on a webcam, keeping them on my computer of me talking to the camera in a really obese state. And then I journaled them for like two years every month and watched myself shrinking, literally shrinking from the top to the bottom. But that again helped me to be accountable to myself, okay? And that's just a personal thing. It's a personal thing that worked for me. Maybe someone's listening and they're struggling with this, this, and this, and they think, how do I break the cycle? How do I get out of it? You take the first step, you become self-accountable and you say, right, I need to make some adjustments over time. It would happen overnight. Someone once said, you don't get fat eating a bad meal in the same way as you don't get skinny eating one good meal. It's a cumulative thing, if that makes sense. So don't lose heart, keep grinding. You'll get where you need to be. Certainly, that's brilliant advice. It's, it reminds me of like Jocko Willink. I know we've talked about him on your show before. It's just given me uh, memories of the likes of David Goggins. But I know you talk fondly about Jocko Willink. And is it extreme ownership? Is that the name? Extreme of, ownership. Is that what he calls it? Yeah, it's a concept that he has that no matter what's going wrong in your life, you don't blame other people for it. You take ownership for it. You break it down. You analyze what went wrong and then you don't point the finger at anyone other than yourself and you move forward and you, you deal with it yourself. As someone once said, if you want something doing right, do it yourself. I'm a big advocate of that one too. That way, when it goes right, you take the credit. If it goes wrong, you take the blame. Extreme ownership. Stop pointing fingers around. Don't feel too sorry for yourself. Just get up and deal with the stuff, the problems at hand. Yeah, for sure. I haven't consumed much Jocko Willink, but I have read David Goggins' Can't Hurt Me. And I've also read two Ant Middleton books, First Man In and The Fear Bubble. Ant Middleton is former SAS. Jocko Willink and David Goggins are former Navy SEAL officers, if I remember that rightly. And yep. we can learn great lessons from the sort of extreme lives that these gentlemen have lived. I swear by it. And actually, it's interesting you're saying about journaling. I... Thinking about it, I have two 
So I have like a food and drink log, but I also write down like sleep and anything to do with health and training in one. So I can just scribble any notes, orange juice, whatever. And then I have a second journal where I write sometimes morning pages if I just need to write stuff down or it's not like a to-do list, but it's just like my thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. If I need to be doing that, I will have a separate journal just for that so that I can keep my sort of, I don't really know even know what that's called, but that's just my sort of narrative, my story in one. Mm -hmm. And then my stats, my physical stats, my weight, my whatever in the other, my training. I got into that habit when I did my first marathon back in 2019. I started training in the February and ran a marathon in the September. And I was properly out of shape when I started training. In fact, I booked the marathon knowing full well that I would have to lose a ton of weight and get extremely (laughs) fit to even make the start line. So I was probably five to nine kilo. When I say overweight, like I, my ideal weight would have been nine kilos lighter than I was. Mm -hmm. Five kilos would have made me look reasonable, but I knew that I would not be able to run a marathon unless I lost all the nine. I would really struggle. So I didn't think, oh, I'll, I'll just see how the training goes and I might book a place in the race later. No, I booked the place in the race first, knowing that that would make me do the work. Because yeah. if, if people think I'm running a marathon, I can't not do it. Like, yep. that's terrible. Like, I'm not going to not do that. So I put myself, I boxed myself in. I made it public that I was running this marathon. I was terrified. I'd never run more than a half marathon in my whole life. It's a long time since I've been a football ref. So I wasn't fit anymore. I didn't have that... I was absolutely terrified. And I did, I, yeah. I wrote down, I had, a, I had three journals then. I had the food and booze log. I had my morning pages and my marathon journal. Yeah. God, I spent a lot of time filling in charts, man. But it was great. And to look back on it, when you are about to run your first marathon, you've got this massive stack of pages of the miles you've run and what happened. And you write notes like, God's sake, don't wear that sports bra next time it rubs you. <laughs> are you <laughs> All this information that you would forget about and that would give you a horrible experience on race day, it all matters. And one time I ate something the night before that I shouldn't have. I had a curry, I'm not going to lie. And it was before something that was a distance of about 10 miles. And it was my first 10 miler. And I got to about mile nine. I thought, I feel really unwell, really unwell. I felt fine until that point. But I was like, I have problems, like gastrointestinal problems. I had to ring my husband and come and get me. He's like, who do you think you are? Paula flicking Radcliffe, what are you doing? So I got in a bit of trouble for that, but I never did that again. Like I I never touched a curry before running ever again. Not saying the curry did it, people. I'm sure there are great curries out there, but I, my God, I I learned a harsh lesson. I I felt rank for about half an hour. I was fine for six miles, eight miles, but it was just something about going towards that mile nine, mile 10. The body hasn't done that before. And if you don't give it the right food, it fails. And it was a real hard lesson, but it's a good one. And I never forgot it. And I'll never do that again. Well, there's a, there's a message in that too, in that mistakes are not bad things. And bad mistakes are not bad things if you take them and if you learn from them. And if you realize that that was a method that you will not go down the wrong road again in the future. Because I don't know about you, but I'm quite stubborn and bloody minded. So you could give me the best advice in the world and I'll nod my head at you and then I'll ignore it. I'll do my thing until I come a cropper and I learn, as they say, they learn the hard way. The wheels come off your vehicle or in your case, you take a curry and you learn about it in mile nine. But guess what? I'm sure you have never repeated that curry thing again because you learn the hard way. But if you learn the hard way, I say the hard way is the best way because it teaches you lessons you'll never forget because you'll never want to repeat them again. For sure. I lecture all the time about love. And you've probably guessed that I'm not talking the fluffy stuff. 
I'm talking about tough love because I see love as two halves of one circle. Half of the semicircle on the left is the fluffy kind, the love that most people would describe if you said describe love, kisses, hugs, affection. For me, the other whole half is tough love. Sometimes you need to be tough with yourself. If you really love yourself, then you've got to say, oi, put that pizza down, fatty. That's enough. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm talking to myself here, but put that pizza down. That is enough now. And if you're not able to do that, then you're going to struggle in life. And you must, as someone who is a teacher or a parent or a coach, you can't expect young people to be able to have self-discipline in all areas from a very young age. Self-discipline is something that's learned over time, like you just said, often the hard, the very Mm -hmm. hard way, like my marathon, my failed uh, 10-miler with the curry. As a parent, as a teacher, as an educator, as a coach, tutor, you have to provide that discipline until the young person creates enough self-discipline in order to be successful in different areas of life. And I think we're massively failing our young people because nobody wants to talk about tough love. It's like it's cruel or something. Well, wasn't it Shakespeare or possibly Sir Francis Bacon who said, Shakespeare, uh, Hamlet, I must be cruel only to be kind. Mm -hmm. So cruelty is okay so long as you're doing it as a kindness. And I think as a society, we've massively lost that, all of this victimhood and the victim Olympics, especially online. I think it's a very, very dark road we've chosen to go down. And I think we have to slam the brakes on and do a UE. What do you think? I agree. I agree. I mean, I just, you know, I maybe shouldn't laugh at this, but I saw a post on Twitter today and there was some guy who was, he said, okay, I've had enough. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing this social media thing anymore. Uh, It's my birthday. I told people it was my birthday and nobody wrote happy birthday on my Twitter feed. I'm quitting. I'm finished. I'm done with all of this. And I thought I was tempted to write something, but it goes against all the stuff that I've been talking to you about for the last hour. But, you know, if you're a grown man and your life's over because some of your bot contacts on Twitter haven't wished you happy birthday, give me a break. Give me a break. You know, so there's a generation out there, sir. There's a generation out there that can't deal with stuff like that. How are they going to deal with the real stuff when it hits them? How are they going to deal with what's coming over the next two to three years if they can't handle being snubbed on Twitter? You know, that's all I'm going to say about that. It's beyond degenerate. I mean, you said we probably shouldn't laugh. Well, I was absolutely wetting myself as you were telling that story. I don't mind admitting it's pathetic. It's ridiculous. I used to get senior members of staff telling me, that, oh, this girl or that boy, they can't sit in the hall to do their exam because it makes them anxious or this and that and the other. And they're very nervous about their exams and la, la, la. And I should say, right, right. People your age were manning the trenches in the First World War with shells and blood and bullets everywhere. Don't you tell me that sitting in there for an hour and a half with a pencil and a pen and a piece of paper is anything like on that scale. Get your backside yeah. in that hall and you do your best or I want to know why. And I yeah. I got great results because you know what? Children want that. Children want you to challenge them. They want you to believe in them. They want you to back them and they want to know that you're not going to have any nonsense from them. They want strong leadership. You know, They want strong leadership and I think yeah. as well, when I cast my mind back, all the way back to when I was, you know, three, four, five, six years of age, there's very few of my so-called teachers that made an impact on me. But the ones that did make an impact on me were the ones that were firm but fair and that were passionate about whatever subject they were trying to teach me. So even if I didn't have a particular interest in them, 
I still paid attention because the person was delivering the subject matter with a little bit of fire in their bones or their belly, okay? Versus maybe a subject that I was interested in, but the teacher was boring as hell and you just switch off and you go into la la la. And so, yeah, based on what you've just said there, you know, you have to be firm with kids or they'll run all over you. They, they, they sense weakness like no other. They sense who they can get away with things like no other. And they, they, they maximize on it. I can remember there's this thing. Teachers have this thing that you just know not to mess with them. So when I went to school, you would go into a classroom and within 10 seconds, you would get the vibe, I can mess with this one. I can throw, throw rubbers across the room and throw pencils at my friends or pea shoot people with this one. But this one, absolutely not. That will not be tolerated. And if you can mar- marry that authoritarian respect with passion, you have what you get, a really good teacher. But show me how many of them. Uh, you count them in the fingers of one hand. Am I thinking since 17, 18 years of education? They're few and far between. Well, it's funny you should say that because there are huge disagreements in staff rooms up and down the country where one teacher will be saying, you know, that Ryan is really terribly behaved in his science class and it's outrageous and something should be done about Ryan. And I'll be thinking, Ryan's freaking awesome. He completes mm-hmm. the most work. He's finished his work first. He tidies the books away. He never causes any trouble in my class. And over time, as you gain experience, you realise what's going on here. They're the same children, but they behave in extremely different manners, depending on mm-hmm. whose classroom they're in. There and you go. they will get away with what you'd let them get away with. It's not Correct. rocket science. It just isn't. I'll never forget the first time I worked in a very, very difficult school, a very challenging school. I did it on purpose because I wanted to test myself when I was a, a newly qualified teacher. And the behaviour in the school was notorious within the county. And it was probably not advisable for a new teacher to try it out but I was a football referee and I've refereed men's football Sunday league so I figured I'd be all right I thought I can deal with this I can deal with 22 grown idiots on a Sunday morning I've got this so I went in there and I had to battle for supremacy it took me about six to eight weeks before I really got proper control especially of the older ones year 10 year 11 so 15 16 that was hard but within three months I had Uh it down anyway the second year when I went back after my first summer holiday into my second year of teaching, I got ready. I rolled up my sleeves, ready for year 10, because I knew they'd be the biggest problem. The 14-year-olds, all the hormones. I thought, yep. 15-year-olds who are doing GCSEs are better because they're scared of their exams. But the year below, who haven't got exams that year, they're the trouble, they're the troublesome year. So I walked in ready for this massive fight with this club to get supremacy and make sure you know, real learning was going to take place this year. And everything was silent. They were all sat there looking at me with their pencil cases out, waiting for the lesson to begin. Now, I thought there was a prank. I was looking for the whoopee cushion on my chair. I was looking for the pins. I was looking for... I was convinced something was going to go down in this lesson. I was waiting for it. Absolutely nothing happened. It took me ages to figure out what what had gone on. Previous year groups had talked about my reputation from being in my class a year before. And these year 10s were absolutely terrified of me. They thought... I. (laughs) They were like, oh, we're not going to mess with her. I had a wonderful time. This class made extraordinary progress. We got on very well. I could let the reins out more quickly because I had absolute classroom discipline. It was a wonderful experience, but I'll never forget it because I really thought I was looking for the trick because I was convinced that, you know, I'd be in a fight like I was last year. But it just goes to show that if you put the work in, that comes back to you. Your reputation goes before you in a positive manner because I get Mm -hmm. results. I'm firm but fair. And at the end of the day, children actually do want to learn. 
And that's the truth. They do. And, and, and they're looking for a figure. Like I said, I mean, I, I'm not a teacher, but there was a, there was a youth group that I was involved in, a group of young lads. Uh, and a, on a Thursday night, a friend of mine runs a large youth organization for boys. And one of the end, the end of the night was always Bible study. <laughs> so when you have a group of young boys uh, from a rough neck of the weeds who have no interest in God, the last thing that they want to do is sit and listen to something about the Bible. But anyway, I was drafted in as the Bible teacher in inverted commas for the youth group. Everyone had quit it up to that point in time. Uh, everybody was nervous because they were quite a rowdy bunch. So I thought, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go. But I went in on day one and pretty much, let me just say, shut the stall out, okay? So I never had any problems at all. And that class, up until sadly uh, March of 2020, went from five boys on a, on a Thursday night to around about 35 wow. within two years, okay? But then the whole thing was shut down because of coronavirus. And at the end of it, not only that, but I went in and I was uh, supposed to give them a little teaching from the Bible. At the end of it, I instigated that I wasn't going to be there forever, that they would have to take on my role and they would have to teach the younger boys down the line, instilling continuity there. By the end of it, I had stopped doing the, the Bible teaching. I selected two of them every week to do the following week and they both gave a little verse. So the last three months I was there, I was stepping away from that role, but I'd instilled that mentality into their heads. So it can be done, but you do need to, um, how would you say, you do need to keep a grip on things and get respect and also show respect to the kids. And when you show respect and you get respect, you have the perfect teaching uh, environment, I think, on planet Earth. Give and uh, receive respect. That's, that's, my, that's my opinion. What were Hogwarts doing all the time? They could never keep uh, Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher, could they, for more than like a term or even a year, maybe at the best. They should have just called you. Uh, that's, that's how to do it. If, if you want someone to do a tough job, you've got to get a tough guy. Well done, well, you, you've marked. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 listen, I had nothing but love for those kids, though, to be honest with you. And they're still going on well, uh, but it was for a season. And I also believe in, uh, what's the word, succession planning. Uh, there's too, much too many times uh, a work can be built up around a figurehead or can be built up around a really good person. And it's like, well, what happens if that person leaves? Does it fall into degeneracy again? Does it go on the slide? You have to make sure that you're looking down the line. Like, For example, if you finish doing what you're doing and you want to continue on the concept of what you're doing, you need to have somebody lined up that's in line with your, you know, your ethos and has the same work ethic as you and the same delivery as you have their own individuality, but you need to think about succession planning and too many times great uh, great um, projects and great groups of people that are led by a strong person. When that strong person goes and someone weak comes in, the whole thing falls apart. You need to also think about succession planning. So there's another tip. Uh, always look at your exit as soon as you come in through the entrance and make sure that when you leave, there's somebody there who's been trained up and who's competent to take on and expand the work that you have been doing. You've just beautifully articulated exactly what it takes to maintain and retain proper teaching and learning over time, regardless of what it is, whether it's sport, whether it's Bible study, whatever. That's exactly, yep. it's your responsibility. It's part of your role. That's part of your job 
is to plan for what happens when you're not going to be there or you're not able to be there, etc. Well said. I'm conscious of time because I know that you've got to be live in the morning and I'm super grateful for everything you've given tonight. Thank you very much indeed for spending this time with us. I must just ask you before you go though, can you tell me about the languages that you learned? Because we've had some fascinating conversations and I I never get to find out a bit more about how you learned these wonderful languages. So would you just mind spending a few minutes padding that out for us and explaining how you did it? Okay, well, uh, when I went to school, I had no interest in languages. Uh, We could do French, uh, German, or Latin, okay? So Latin was a no-no, French and German, I was never particularly into it. So come third year, I dropped them all, never was a language person. Started going to Kenya uh, in 2007, uh, realized that to be effective in that country, doing what I was doing, was going to have to learn to speak a little bit of the language, just simply because uh, it shows you respect the people, respect the culture, one thing and another. But being that they spoke Swahili, I live in Northern Ireland. There is no Swahili on any curriculum. There is no courses. There's no open university courses. What do I do? <laughs> so when I was there, I tried to immerse myself as much as possible uh, by trying not to speak English at all, even though I couldn't speak their language. It was like, should I just point and grunt at things? I'm not going to use the fallback, which I could have done. Uh, so I started to ask people like, uh, and you know, when you learn languages as well, they teach you things like uh, the the shelf is too high for me to put the cup on. Like, that's no good. It's like, where's the toilet? You know, that's what you need to learn. How are you? You need to learn stuff like that. Not the cat is sitting on the fence, you know, things like that. So I discovered because I had time, I was time bound. I thought I need to cut all the crap. I need to get down to basic conversational vocabulary and I need to be able to speak and frame the words well. So I asked the guy that I did a lot of uh, work with in the field. I was coming and going two to three times a year for three to four weeks at a time. thought, right, I need to maximize this. So I used to sit with him at night and say, right, here's what I want you to teach me. Not you're going to teach me this. This is what I need to know. So I had a list of things that I needed to know rather than him saying, you should think about this. So I said, okay, how do you say that? And then I wrote it down phonetically. So it's like, uh, you know, j- the word for hello in Swahili is jambo. So uh, I wrote it down as J-A-M hyphen B-O-W. Okay, jambo. That's how to say it. Even though that's not how to spell it, that's how to say it. And then it was like, I looked at him and said, now, what are you doing with your mouth? And he was making these funny moves with his mouth and his tongue was going. So I was looking at the way he was framing the words. So I phonetically wrote them down. They weren't grammatically correct, but they were phonetically correct. And then I looked at how he delivered them phonetically, and that got me my grounding in basic conversational Swahili. Then I bought a textbook after that. I went the opposite direction. I ended up with a textbook to learn basic verbs and grammar and adjectives and noun classes, etc. And then I have a confession I'm going to make live on air. When I was in my government job, <laughs> I was assigned a task for six months. I had to go and work remotely in another office, Sarah, for six months, every single day. And I had hundreds and hundreds of pages of Swahili grammar. I immersed myself in Swahili between, <laughs> between 2009 and 2012. Most of my working day was spent learning Swahili with a textbook under my spreadsheets, no joke, and a little uh, shorthand book with my pen writing out Swahili grammar while I pretended I was making notes on homeless statistics. So take, take whatever time you can get 
get some basic <laughs> grasp of the language and then apply it at every chance you get. I walked the roads talking to myself at night in Swahili. I, 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 I sang songs trying to translate them into Swahili. I spoke to my wife in Swahili, even though she hadn't a clue what I was saying. I just did it and did it and did it to the point where I got by. I could actually get by in basic conversation after two years. So if I can do it, uh, someone out there who's maybe interested in languages has never attempted them, left it too late. Just immerse yourself in it. Throw yourself into it. Be afraid. Don't be afraid to make a fool of yourself and keep banging away at it. So that's the long story short. I love how you describe looking into the mouth of your teacher, how, the, how, to, make, how to physically make the shapes with your tongue, with your teeth how it's done, not yeah. some theory, not, yes, by all means, back it up with theory, but if you can't actually pronounce a single word, you're stuffed anyway. It doesn't matter how good your grammar is, it's Correct. over. There's a gentleman who lives not very far from me who has obviously had a very nice private education. He used to play rugby for Scotland, a very traditional education, I'm sure. And he has grammatically perfect French. Like, it's enviable. I can hear it, and I'm like, wow, I wish I could do that. He can't be understood at all because he speaks French. He pronounces it all with an English accent. And that's a particularly grave crime in French. They hate you for that. And round here, in fairness, they actually do not speak English. There is no English spoken by French people where I live because it's very rural. And it's sad because I'm a bit street and I end up translating for this guy who's got way better grammar and a way better education in French than I have. But he can't be understood because he won't make the shapes. He hasn't made the effort to, you know, properly be understood. And the other thing that resonated just there was I used to work on the supermarket checkouts when I was 15, 16, 16, 17, and I was studying A-level German. And when it was a bit quiet, when nobody was waiting at my checkout, I used to grab out my little flashcards and learn some vocabulary while I was waiting for the next customer. And funnily enough, the supervisors were fine because I was very switched on, so I wouldn't make a customer wait. Obviously, I'd just ditch what I was doing and serve the customers, and I was chatty and quite reasonably likable, I suppose. But one guy caught me one night. He'd come up with his little basket quite close to the end of the shift, and I was so engrossed in what I was doing, he, like, startled me. And he's like, what are you doing? So I showed him, and he went, oh, I speak German. And he burned me some CDs that I could practice the listening just because he thought I was learning it, and he thought it was great. So how wonderful that, again, the universe, again, isn't it? If you actually... Instead of wasting your time sat there twiddling, you know, making little blue tack models or something, you know, moronic, I was sat there using the free time in a valuable way and I got rewarded. Like I got these free CDs, which I couldn't have afforded to buy that stuff back then, even, even though I was working and studying. And this guy gave me this stack of CDs in German to help me improve my listening skills, which are, I think, probably some of the hardest things to do is to listen to like a telephone call or a, I think the listening is so difficult, especially in real time when you're trying to converse. So I'm yeah. very grateful for that extra help. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, there is, you know, like I said, I'm not a languages person, but uh, if you couple uh, desire with effort in terms of language, you'll get there. So I saw the need, I, I saw the need for it rather than, you know, when I went to school, I've never had any plans to go to France. So what would be the point in me learning French? Or I never wanted to go to Germany. Why should I learn German? You know, I'm never going to use it when I leave school. Whereas this was strange. This was later on in life. And I saw the need and the necessity to learn it to make me, A, more comfortable, B, integrate better and C, gain some respect. So there was the need. Then I had the desire. And then I put the effort in and I got a result. So uh, it was, uh, it's, it's, that's a good formula. You know, need, 
plus desire plus effort equals result. If you take need, desire, or effort out of any of those things when it comes to learning, you're not going to get a result. I can absolutely identify with what you said there. I also used to say to my teachers, I'm never going to go to France. I don't care about French. I hate it. I don't want to live there. The language is horrible. It's ridiculous. I've ended up living there as an adult. So there you go. <laughs> That's stuffed. <laughs> I deserve that. I so deserve that. You learned the hard um, way. I didn't do the right thing and the universe taught me the hard way. <laughs> so here I am learned, as an adult. But you've learned. I have. It's been painful. <laughs> But I, we're getting there. We are getting there. Are. Listen, we Rick, are. thank you so much for everything that you've given tonight, but especially oh, for the, the work that you've been doing. And I've personally benefited from your Twitter, from your videos, and particularly from talking to you on your show. And I'm genuinely grateful from a personal perspective of the things that you have been willingly giving to everybody. And I just want to say a massive thank you for everything that, that you've done. And please keep doing it. Look after yourself. But, you know, you're a valuable resource, an invaluable resource. And you must look after yourself, but and we'll keep doing what you're doing for as long as you can. Where can people find you as well? Will you please let us know before you go where people can follow you and hear you? Yeah, if you go onto Twitter and search for No Risk, No Reward, I'll pop up on that on any search. And on TNT Radio, the website address is actually tntradio.live. Uh, you can go onto that website and from there, just search for presenters. You'll see me and all the recorded broadcasts with all the guests are on there, including all the times that you've kindly appeared on there. Everything's on there as a back catalog. And also there's, uh, yeah, Twitter or my TNT address is the best place to connect with me. And if you need to contact me, you can do it in either one of those ways. And thank you, by the way, for the opportunity to talk. It's always nice to see you. It's always nice to speak to you. It's always nice to have you on my show. And you in return, uh, I, I echo what you said to me. Keep doing what you're doing. It's an invaluable resource, a service that you're providing. I don't even want to call it a service, but you get what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, parents, if you're a subscriber to the Plumley Pod, maybe you don't know how good you've got it. Believe me, there's not a lot like her out there. So you just keep banging on the drum too, as I shall also. I think we've just made a pact there. We'll have to keep each other accountable now. I think we've just done it. Thank you very much for your generous praise and, uh, you know, right back at you, of course. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Rick Munn of TNT Radio. Get on his show, Locked and Loaded. Uh, that's 10 till 1 UK time, Monday to Friday at this moment. And the website, tntradio.live. That's tntradio.live. And Rick's personal Twitter, which is amazing, is no risk, no reward. Search no risk. No reward. Rick Munn, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. And have a nice night. You too. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination. 